Welcome to this episode of Season 4 of The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has reached over 3.5 million listeners, viewers, and readers around the world. The Common Bridge is available on the Substack website and the Substack app. Just search for The Common Bridge. You can find the program on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. The Common Bridge draws guests and audiences from across the political spectrum, and we invite you to become a free or paid subscriber on your favorite medium. Hello and welcome to The Common Bridge. I'm your host, Rich Helpy, and we've got one of our favorite guests returning today from Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, Dr. Anthony Colangelo, and we're going to be talking about international law. Professor Colangelo, welcome to The Common Bridge. Thank you. There's a lot going on in the Ukraine. I don't know that anybody forecasted that the war would turn this way or the special military operation as Vladimir Putin captioned it at first. I think he may have changed that. But it does impact a lot of international law. The UN has been investigating. It seems that there's pretty clear evidence of war crimes. Uh, we're going to talk today about a concept of universal jurisdiction and what other nation states around the world can do. And of course, we're doing this against this background of what's going to happen next with the bridge to Crimea being destroyed, the Nord Pipeline being destroyed, nuclear saber rattling, and, and even our own president using the word Armageddon. So very perilous times indeed. But where are we on the international law? Professor, what should we be thinking about today? I think the key issue right now, in light of the UN fact-finding mission, is that war crimes uh, have likely been committed. Um, I actually think, looking at the fact-finding mission, there's no question in my mind that war crimes have been committed. Um, the prosecutor at the International Criminal Court has opened an investigation into prosecuting war crimes, or prosecuting for war crimes. Um, and that's actually where a lot of the attention has been focused at this point. Um, what I wanted to talk about is something a little bit different, which is if the ICC or International Criminal Court is taking a long time um, or is not doing a very good job, what other mechanisms are there out there for states to combat war crimes and hold the perpetrators accountable. And here, I think, is where international law has a lot of teeth. Um, there is a concept called universal jurisdiction. And universal jurisdiction allows any state in the world to prosecute the perpetrators of certain crimes against international law. And these would include genocide, crimes against humanity, torture, um, and war crimes. Um, what's so interesting about this is it does not require any connection to the crime. So any state can prosecute, and there doesn't have to be a territorial connection, doesn't have to happen on that state's territory, um, it doesn't have to involve that state's nationals. And my thesis, going back to 2006, when I originally started writing on this topic, it's a real specialty of mine, uh, is that what states are doing when they assert this universal jurisdiction is they're uh, acting as the vessel uh, for the application of international law. 
It is a decentralized enforcement mechanism for the application and vindication of international law. And this is a thesis that has now been uh, cited and quoted by numerous courts uh, around the country. Um, so let me, see if, let me see if I understand that. It, if the UN believes war crimes have been committed, from anybody from a foot soldier to Vladimir Putin himself, uh, Chile, just to pick a random country, could say, we're going to prosecute that war crime, and they would have standing to do that. How would they even go about bringing that case? And, you know, it, it, it almost sounds like the Texas abortion law. You don't even have to be a party to what's right. going on in order to uh, prosecute. Yeah. Uh, so this, this, I'll give you a little history here. Um, how this started out. It started out with piracy. Um, the high seas, nobody had jurisdiction, but these pirates were a scourge on international trade and human rights. And there are cases in our jurisprudence dating back to the founding in which the court said, Chief Justice Marshall, in fact, uh, the pirate is a wolf's head that any man may slay. Um, so everybody in the international community has an interest in prosecuting pirates. Today, especially after World War II, there was a big boom in this category of cases um, to include human rights violations. And the theory is that international law proscribes these at a very, very high level because they are so damaging to the rule of law that every state has an interest in prosecuting. Moreover, if you look at the states that ordinarily would prosecute crimes, it's the territorial state or the national state. But of course, who are the authors of the crimes we're talking about? They're the state itself. So we need some enforcement mechanism outside that mm -hmm. state to have jurisdiction to prosecute crimes that occur inside that state perpetrated by the very state itself. So, you know, in a criminal proceeding, there's a reasonable doubt that there's a crime. There's a, an investigation done and then, you know, perhaps an indictment and then an arrest and then a trial. I mean, I can't imagine you know, Vladimir Putin submitting to any of that. And it seems to me that in history, prosecution of war crimes has been the purview of the victor in, you know, clear-cut war post-World War II, Nuremberg, post-World War II, Japan and such. How would something like this play out where this universal jurisdiction would actually have reach into soldiers that have committed atrocities that would be defined as war crimes, or indeed the attacks that were directed by Putin would be described as war crimes? Mm -hmm. Is there really any teeth in it? Yeah. Um, so it, it actually happens. Um, there's the famous case of Israel versus Adolf Eichmann. Uh, Eichmann being a Nazi who perpetrated crimes in Germany uh, during World War II when Israel was not even a state. So what would, would have been the basis of Israeli jurisdiction uh, at that time? It couldn't be that Eichmann committed these crimes on Israeli territory. Israeli didn't, territory didn't exist. He didn't commit crimes against Israeli nationals. I mean, they were Jewish, but they weren't nationals of the state of Israel. So what, what was the basis of the crime, uh, the basis of the prosecution? It was the crime itself that gave rise to jurisdiction. I mentioned some of my work being cited and relied upon by courts in the United States. There are a couple of Somali pirates that are in jail right now because of one of the articles that I wrote. Sounds to me, from a lay perspective, that's really groundbreaking 
legal thesis, legal theory. So tell us a little bit about maybe where was the state of the law prior, then your research and subsequent column, and then the application for the Somali pirates. What what changed in there? Um, so basically, there was there were two ways of thinking about universal jurisdiction uh, in the jurisprudence. And one was that we looked to precedent, and the main precedent on this piracy issue was from the founding, around the founding in the early 1800s. And uh, piracy, as defined by international law then, was um, robbery on the high seas. And my thesis was that piracy or any universal jurisdiction crime, the definition evolved with changes in international law. And so the court that upheld the prosecution of the pirate looked to modern day piracy, which was uh, the definition is contained in the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. Uh, And my, my, you know, argument was actually the founders thought that international law was a fluid law. It was evolutionary. It wasn't static. So if we were to be true to the founding thinking on this question, then we too should view international law as an evolving set of norms, which captured modern day piracy, because the pirates in the present case, their crimes were not robbery on the high seas. They were shooting at civilian frigates and things like that. So the court sided with me. Uh, another court didn't. I think the court that sided with me is wrong, is right. (laughs) 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 But I did want to mention one thing before, before we move on, which is, um, your question about, or your comments about kind of getting a Vladimir Putin into court or Russian soldiers, the soldiers, it's easier. If you can, can capture them, prosecute, you can prosecute them. You can even kidnap them. And that would be legal under international law. It's a doctrine called male captus bene detentis, the bad capture, the good detention. For Putin in particular, and certain high-ranking officials, it's a little bit more difficult because there's something called sovereign immunity. So he, as president of Russia, is immune from suit under international law until he leaves office. It's his status as a high-ranking official that he's immune from suit until he leaves office. But once he leaves office, he can be prosecuted for the crime, for war crimes and the crime of aggression. There's also some, so that would be his status as a president, status-based immunity. There's another immunity called conduct-based immunity, and that insulates and makes immune from prosecution certain acts taken in the course of official functions of the government. Now here you've got war crimes. Well, war crimes are not official acts. Uh, They don't qualify as official acts under international law. So when Putin leaves office, he's subject to prosecution anywhere in the world. So that makes sense to me because citing post-World War II, those that were prosecuted, they were out of office because their governments no longer existed. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't claim that the things they did were in the line of duty or because as part of the job. In fact, you know, the famous Nuremberg defense never worked. But as a practical matter, uh, the allies had control of the geography. They were able to gather up these high ranking people and bring them to trial. But I mean, as a practical matter, you know, Vladimir Putin's not going to leave Russia. Right. And, And so nobody's going to go in there 
and you know, make an arrest, even some of like our well-publicized arrests that we had, you know, Roger Stone, 24 guys going in to get him. So I, I don't know how we're going to be able to reach him. And and isn't there a parallel here that there were people outside and perhaps within the United States after the Iraq war saying that President Bush should have been arrested for a war crime? Is it the same theory? It is the same theory. Yes. And, and the crime is the invasion not the conduct of the soldiers on the ground, like attacking civilian targets and things. It's both. Oh, it's both. So okay. It's so it's both. So there are two categories of war crimes. One goes to the invasion, and that's called jus ad bellum. J u s a d b e l l u m is the Latin for it. Okay. And that is that is the the law governing the territorial sovereignty of the state that's been violated. So here, aggression is a violation of jus ad bellum. The other category of crimes are jus in bello. So J-U-S-I-N-B-E-L-L-O is the Latin for that. And those are the war crimes. So you can have, for example, a war that is perfectly legitimate, a war of self-defense, right? So here we've got Ukraine now. Ukraine's acting in self-defense, perfectly legal under international law, but the UK, Ukraine soldiers can still commit war crimes. They could violate the use in bellow, even though the use ad bellum is perfectly fine. I see. So thinking back in our history, Vietnam, and if memory serves me correctly, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara late in his life said he probably could have been prosecuted for war crimes. Is that because some of the atrocities that were carried out by military people under his command did something or because of violating the territorial integrity of another country? That If he said war crimes, he was probably referring to the use in Bello, the, the conduct of the soldiers in Vietnam. And his the, the liability would run from those soldiers straight up to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, straight up to the top of the chain of command. Right. And it could be that the policies of the carpet bombing and things that we were doing indiscriminately hitting. Yeah. And that would be a war crime. That would be a war crime. Right. So as this conflict in Ukraine grinds on, I know there's been more talk about the weaponry that we've sent into Ukraine. And if memory serves me correctly, that you felt we were legally justified, we being the United States, legally justified in doing that. First of all, did I recall that correctly? And do we have, I'm not going to comment on the policy itself, but just the legality. Is one country allowed to arm another as much as we've armed Ukraine? Uh, I think the answer is absolutely yes. You know, Article 51 of the UN Charter says collective self-defense. And this is a collective self-defense. I think it's perfectly legal, yeah. Do we know that in history, has there ever been a surrender or a ceasefire or any cessation of hostilities where one of the terms was non-prosecution of war crimes? Well, what there war crimes, I would have to think about it some more. But there are amnesties that are that have been set up for human rights abuses that's the first thing that pops into my head so kind of like truth and reconciliation that type of commission what was happening in the background there i don't know if i i don't know if i can come up with a war crimes instance off the top of my head well it's comforting to know there is such a thing as universal jurisdiction and 
I would think a person in Vladimir Putin's place probably is thinking about winning the war first because there's really not much risk um, absent a defeat. We've had Professor Jesse Kaufman on talking about what may happen in the Ukraine. And his view was that this war would not end without regime change, either in Moscow or Kiev. So it seems to me that much of this might be academic at those senior levels, but those soldiers that would be captured would be subject to prosecution. And I believe one of them actually pled guilty at mm-hmm. one point. He's been sentenced to 10 years in a Ukraine prison. Yeah, I, I I agree with that, that we stand a very small chance of getting Putin in our courts. Um, but as you say, I mean, he's not going to be leaving Russia anytime soon. We could capture him. Uh, you know, that's that's a an option. It's going to be very hard, but you know, I don't know that we want to do that for any number of reasons, but but it also does tie into the allegations against President Bush and Donald Rumsfeld from the Iraq war, that it was a violation of international law, and therefore, you know, Belgium should be able to prosecute. You think it was a leap legally for Saudi Arabians trained in Afghanistan attacking us on 9-11 didn't warrant a military invasion of Iraq. Who'd have thunk it? (laughs) I understand the connection that I'm sure the Iraqis, and we know Saddam Hussein was surprised by the attack. And similarly, you know, Ukraine was surprised, not surprised by the attack. And, And look, this is changing the face of Europe. It's changing the role of NATO. Finland now, 700-plus-mile border with Russia joining NATO. These are seminal events that are going to play out for decades, if not longer. What takeaway lessons do we want to leave for the readers, the viewers, and the listeners of the Common Bridge, most of whom are not familiar at all, like me, with the topics around the law as it pertains to war and military aggression? Yeah, I would just say there is a justice mechanism out there called universal jurisdiction. It's little understood, but it's quite powerful. And it provides a forum for the vindication, human rights, and killed civilians. And there's been a lot of talk about the International Criminal Court. But I guess what I would push is this conversation doesn't need to stop there, okay? That there's this very long-standing doctrine that states can rely upon in order to bring the perpetrators of war crimes to justice. So if a foot soldier today is on Ukraine soil and is tempted to do something, attack a civilian, murder, rape, torture, that the long arm of international law may reach them someday at the cessation of hostilities, and they could be sentence, I don't know what the sentences are, if they're prison or death, but that they're running that risk every day they're invading into Ukraine. Yeah. I mean, look, here's the thing. What do we want our criminal law to do? Right. I mean, this is a fundamental question. We want to punish. Of Of course, we want to punish people who commit human rights abuses and war crimes. But we also want to deter, you know, exactly going back exactly to your hypothetical. Here's this guy. He's on the battlefield. He's tempted to commit a war crime. There is this mechanism out there to hold him accountable. Does that deter him even a little bit than nothing, which would be the alternative? 
And I would say, even if it deters him just a little bit and you aggregate that and multiply it across all of these soldiers, you're seeing a real difference in the way human actors behave in the waging of war. Because again, the alternative is nothing. So when people say to me, well, oh, international law doesn't exist. It doesn't exert any, any coercive power. I mean, I think the answer is no, it does. And what's the alternative? I concur with you. And, you know, my memory is long enough to understand the prosecutions during the Vietnam War when our military did horrible things, but they were held accountable. In fact, there's some heroic stories about other units coming in to prevent massacres and further bloodshed to innocent people. Professor, you're always so generous with your time, and I'm so glad we have people like you working on the cutting edge of these issues. Before we wrap up today, anything that we haven't talked about or any closing thoughts you'd like to share with our listenership? Um, we covered a lot of ground, didn't we? We sure did. Yeah. So I'm uh, <laughs> nothing's coming to mind. We've been talking today on The Common Bridge with Professor Anthony Colangelo of Southern Methodist University and some intriguing angles on the war in Ukraine. Please look up Professor Colangelo's biography and some of his writings. There are good people working on good things out there. And that's what the Common Bridge is about. So join us on the Common Bridge at Substack.com. For today, this is your host, Rich Helpy, signing off on the Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on the Common Bridge. Subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com or use their Substack app where you can find more interviews, columns, videos, and nonpartisan discussions of the day. Just search for The Common Bridge. You can also find The Common Bridge on Mission Control Radio on your Radio Garden app.